Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. So good to see each of you tonight for our Good Friday service. Uh, I do hope and pray that our time together will be a blessing to you, an encouragement for you, and that it will provide for you a greater sense of understanding, a greater depth of adoration for the Lord and all that He has for us. Um, As we're doing throughout this Easter season this year, I'm drawing from the Gospel of Matthew as I preached on Palm Sunday from Matthew chapter 21. On Sunday, I'll preach from Matthew's account of the resurrection. But tonight, I want us to draw from part of Matthew's account of Good Friday. He gives us an extensive look at the events of Good Friday. And it's from that I want to draw tonight. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 54, I want to begin by reading those verses. And then I want us to look at them together. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word tonight. Zero Dark Thirty is a slang term from the military that refers to an unspecified early hours of the morning, usually when things were being prepared, but also when a lot of operations would begin at least, if not completed in those hours before dawn. If you know anything about spending time in the woods or outside, the darkest and the coldest hours of the night are the two or three hours just before the dawn. The connotation with this phrase, zero dark 30 or even zero dark 100, is is that it's a time that uh, uh, the unwanted takes place. It's a time when the unwanted are awake, and and if you're going to deal with the things that are unwanted, 
the type of activity that takes place and occurs occurs at this hour. It, it, it's addressing things that thrive under the cloak of darkness. You might say zero dark 30 refers to the cursed hour, if you will. And the idea is, if you're going to gain victory, you must go to them in their hour, in their place where they are active. Good Friday is the day that we remember Jesus' crucifixion and death. Good Friday is the day that Jesus entered into the realm of death and the place of the grave where Satan operates and where sin flourishes. And he offered himself as a propitiation for our sin, the scripture says to us. In other words, he was put forth instead of us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, but he was glad to do for us. And I believe too often we read these passages of Scripture and knowing what the end is, we move quickly to watch the sun set upon the victory. But friends, Good Friday is not just a hiccup along the way to Easter morning. Because of Good Friday, Easter morning matters to us. And because of Easter morning, Good Friday matters to us. And that's why this is so important for us this evening. I want to ask you to do something a little different tonight. And you're going to have to trust me. I know for some of you that's going to be hard. But I want to ask you to take just a moment and close your eyes and listen to some of the things that I'm going to say. I, I, want, I want you for a moment to allow the darkness behind closed eyes to sharpen your hearing and your thinking in order to meditate on the midday of Good Friday. It must have been a very scary day when Jesus died. A rather unpleasant time to be present. For the darkness of the hours were only a symbol of the undesirableness of the activity. Matthew records for us in these verses that at noon of day, darkness fell across the whole land. Not a small spot of land, but the way he says it is that it fell upon an entire geographical region. And he says it in such a way to denote a divine intervention that was taking place. Now darkness is associated with several meanings in Scripture, but two that are most important and that are linked here are the end of all things and God's judgment on sin at the cross. You see, friends, creation itself was mourning its creator's suffering. A few hours later at 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And when he cries out, he cites Psalm chapter 22 in its opening verse. And there's some confusion that erupts in the crowd. You can only imagine the last four days have been utter chaos from the activity in the, 
in the city and the last few hours have been complete chaos from the yelling and the screaming and the the unjust trial that was taking place leading up to the crucifixion. And what begins as a question of God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is really not a question at all, but a statement that culminates in a deliverance by God at the end of that psalm. You see, Jesus was crying out in a loud voice and speaking to the Father. And then a few verses later, Matthew records again that Jesus cried out yet again in a loud voice. And this time, he yielded up his spirit and died. Many things take place in this passage, and we can surely not entertain to say all that took place. But here's what we clearly do see from Matthew's record. Jesus surrendered his life unto death. A crucified man, you see, doesn't die from the nails in his hands. He dies from suffocation when the weight of his body can no longer be held because of the way he's suspended in the air. And so his body presses against his lung, pressing all of the air out. And there is no breath to cry out loudly at the end of his life. When Jesus cried out twice loudly, there was a statement being made about what he was doing. He was yielding up his spirit, his very life, to the Father who had sent him for this very purpose. And at that moment, it says Jesus yielded his spirit. It tells us that heaven broke loose and immediately everything changed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, rendered completely obsolete. In an instant, the habitation of God was fully exposed where he had been only completely hidden. And Matthew records a most harrowing events to witness and, and even hard for us to comprehend when he says this. He says that once the temple curtain was torn into, the earth shook, rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and came out of the tomb and even made their appearances to many. We see things taking place here At an hour of the day, under the shroud, if you will, of divine darkness, that are anything but natural or normal for the course of life. And really the only thing that we can say with certainty about Jesus' death is that we don't know all that took place for sure. But friends, this is not just another episode of a comic superhero entertainment sequel. What we can say that the gospel writers clearly articulate is that all creation itself reacted to the suffering and death of the Lord. 
For its creator had died. Its sustainer had deceased. And so all creation mourns Jesus' death and groans as it awaits full redemption in him. The hour of Jesus' death, friends, was like none other. Those who carried it out were the ones who had the final word in it. The guards themselves cast their gaze upon Jesus, and their testimony was simply, truly, this was the Son of God. And in that moment, God was satisfied, Satan was defeated, sin was atoned, Righteousness was vindicated. Darkness was exposed. Love was arrayed. And hope solidified. Now I ask you to open your eyes. Because, well, don't want it to lead to something else, right? Friends, listen to me when I say what I'm about to say. Because this is critical for us to understand Good Friday and what took place. Jesus didn't battle Satan to defeat him. Jesus offered himself up to satisfy God's righteous demand for our sin. And when Jesus said, it is finished, God said, it is done. Jesus walked into Satan's domain, the grave. He walked in at will because he is the one who has sovereign authority over all life and death. There is no domain, neither in this physical world or in the spiritual world or any other world or realm where the sovereignty of our Lord is not absolute and where he does not reign. I can tell you this, that when Jesus walked into that grave, he was not the one uncomfortable in that grave. It was Satan that was twitching. It was Satan that was nervous about why he had shown up and not the other people who deserved to be there. I tell you, Jesus rested from the atoning work over Saturday into Sunday morning because even in his atoning work, it was a Sabbath and he was honoring God first. That's a beautiful picture if you think about it for a moment. You see, he was only in the grave, by my estimation, somewhere between 32, 33, and maybe as long as 40 hours. On Friday evening to Sunday morning. Three days, they say, because it covered the span That touched on three full days. But in that tomb, it was not Jesus who was uncomfortable, antsy to get out because he wasn't satisfied with where he was. It was Satan who was uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, he was paralyzed with fear when Jesus walked into the grave because it wasn't supposed to be the Son of God that came into the grave. It was supposed to be all of those who rightly were condemned to the grave because of their sin. You see, the man that showed up in the tomb that night was not the man Satan was ever expecting to see in the grave. But that's why it was so powerful 
for you and our. It should have been us. It should have been you and me and all who have fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin, walking into the grave and into our eternal prison. But that's not who showed up on that night. It was the Son of God. You see, friends, the war of salvation is not about God versus Satan. The war about salvation is about God fighting for us. And that's the image of Good Friday. That's the potency of what takes place on this day in the scriptural account. Satan lied to deceive and to condemn us. God sent the truth in Jesus to come in and redeem us. God made a way in Jesus to rescue us from hell's dark domain. And Satan in that dark domain was absolutely powerless to stop him in his doing it. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Sin's darkness is no match for Jesus. For even Paul says, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Grace will never be outdone by sin because Jesus will never be outdone by Satan. Doesn't stand a chance against Jesus' blood. When Jesus died, he went where we were condemned to spend eternity in sin's damnation to demonstrate his power to rescue all who were there and who by faith would trust in him. You see, friends, Jesus secured our eternal salvation not by defeating Satan. Surely that was absolutely done. Jesus secured our eternal salvation by satisfying God's righteous demand. The writer of Hebrew tells us that when we come to the throne of God, We don't come begging and stealing and borrowing as if we have no claim to be there. For in Christ Jesus, we run boldly to the throne because of who paid our way to get there. This is the image that Matthew and that the gospel writers draw for us on Good Friday. There was never a moment in any of this when Jesus wondered if he would walk out of it victorious. There was never a moment when God questioned whether or not Satan might get one good blow in. And like like the famous Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a plan until you get hit in the jaw, right? There, There was never a doubt. There was never a question or a speculation. There was never a tinge of anxiety or of uncertainty. What he did, he did for us, and he did complete in every way. Matthew describes a horrific event of incalculable proportion, but it was divinely ordained and it was willingly undertaken for people who are completely unworthy. Yet he was glad to do it. It makes no sense, but it does bring peace with God. And that's the good news that we proclaim on Good Friday. Jesus offered up his life for our sin 
that he might give to us his life with God. You see, friends, Good Friday is is the remembrance of Jesus' death. It's not when we come back each year and, and with somberness of face, we try to act as if we're genuinely mourning for something that we were neither present for nor maybe we've even read enough about getting to the Good Friday service. Oh, we've got to act really somber today. Somebody died. Who? Well, Jesus. Well, I didn't even know him, you know. I mean, you could tell your kids that, you know, or your kids would say that to you. Well, shh, don't say that at church, right? Well, I haven't seen him. I didn't, I didn't see him die. I didn't go to his funeral. That, that's not what Good Friday's all about, friends. We're, we're not here to, to mourn Jesus' death in, in a posture of somberness, like, like we need to act like we're really sorry that it happened. No, actually, we remember his death, absolutely overwhelmed that it has taken place for us. We grieve not Jesus' death, but our grief is aimed over our sin that nailed him to the cross. And we grieve today because we see that sin in us. We know that sin in us. That's why Paul instructs the Corinthians that, that ask the Spirit to search you and to try you. See if there be any way in you that continues in sin, lest again you take the cup and you take the bread and you drink and you eat in such a way that demands Jesus be willing to do it all over again because that's how casually and flippantly we've treated what he's done for us. Friends, Good Friday is about grieving over our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, but remembering his willingness to do that. And only as we see our sin that drove the nails to pierce his hand can we understand our forgiveness that comes by him hanging on a tree for us. Good Friday holds three remembrances that lead us to repent of sin we remember Jesus' death on Good Friday to remind ourselves of God's righteous demand against sin. Sin is eternally, dreadfully, deadfully serious. And only when we make light of sin will, make, will we make little of God. The events surrounding Jesus' death are incomprehensible because our understanding of God's righteousness is woefully insufficient. One of the reasons we can't fully comprehend everything that took place in Jesus' death is because we've not fully comprehended just how deep, just how offensive our sin really is and just how holy God is. And this is the very reason that we needed a sacrifice for us, that we needed a Savior, that we needed a spotless sacrificial lamb that could take our place because any offering that we would give to God would be woefully insufficient. The righteous demand of God upon us in sin could only be satisfied by one who could fully bear that demand. Jesus knew 
the holiness of God. He understood the ramifications of sin. And he was the only one who could stand in our place and fully acknowledge both, represent us, and satisfy God's righteous demand. Jesus satisfied God's righteous demand to bring redemption as a gift to all who trust in him. You see, friends, that righteous demand is no more placed upon us in Christ because he satisfied it for us before God. Second of all, we remember Jesus' death to remind ourselves of Jesus' willing sacrifice as the propitiation for our sin. Surely we see God's high righteous demand, but we also see Jesus' willing sacrifice. As we saw on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane from the very beginning as he entered Jerusalem, and as we saw in the scriptures only briefly before this very passage when he prayed, If there be any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus' sacrifice was willing in every way to take our place. At every step along the last week of his life, he repeatedly demonstrated his willingness to die in our place. He submitted his will to the Father. He surrendered himself to the arresting Jewish leaders. He submitted himself to the sentence of the Roman rulers, and he endured the mocking, the agony, the brutal abuse, the suffering from the crowds and from the Roman soldiers. And he did it in a way that had been predicted many, many years before from the prophet Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why, why, why? Willingness. That's why. He was willing to give himself for you and I. He was glad to give himself for you and I. His love was not begrudging. It was all giving. And friends, if you don't know that you are cursed in your sin and eternally condemned, it won't matter to you that he hung on a tree for you. Jesus willingly took our place, became our sin, bore our curse to die our death so he could gladly give us his righteousness and life. With God. And thirdly, we remember Jesus' death to remind ourselves that God Himself is the one who died for us. The only one worthy to enter the Holy of Holies was the one willing to go and die so that we might come into the presence of the one who resided in the Holy. Of holies. You see, that's why 
the curtain of the temple was rent in two. And we're not talking about a small tear. We're not talking about we've got to get some duct tape to put that back together. We're talking about rendered completely unusable in every way. But more so than that, now because of the one who tore it down, completely unnecessary. God himself entered into his own place of habitation. He became our curse by hanging on a tree for us. He paid our penalty of our prideful rebellion by humbling himself to death on a cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame, Hebrews says, that sins might be removed, not from him, from us. He traversed the frozen chill of sin's darkness to rescue us and to bring us into the kingdom of light. Friends, God put forth his only son to plunge the depths of sin's domain to tell us that there is no depth of which we may find ourselves. There is no abysmal darkness or absence of light where we are ever out of the reach of God's saving hand. Why? Because Jesus has been there. And he wasn't nervous about it at all. He walked out as confident as he walked in. Humbly submitted to the sovereign hand of the Father. This is love in its highest degree, its highest form, its highest expression, and to its fullest extent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus offered up his life for our sin to give to us his life with God. Good Friday is our zero dark 30. It is the hour and it is the realm where the activity is unspeakable, but the victory unbelievable. Have you, friend, repented of your sins, turned from your own rebellion and rejection of God, and submitted your life to the only one who's loved you in the most perfect, the most complete in the eternal way that only God can. If you have not, I beg of you tonight, let this Good Friday be your first to worship God in spirit and in truth, completely bound in by the one who has come for you, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.